Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we're talking about donor anonymity with Gina Davis, founder of Advocate Genetics, who's a multi-state licensed, board-certified genetic counselor specializing in the field of reproductive medicine. Gina, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So for our listeners, can you help explain how donor anonymity has sort of changed through the years and how providers can help individuals and their families integrate into their decision-making for gamete donation? Sure. For me, it all shifted when at-home genetic testing opened to relative finding. Um, I think before that time, we had all been operating in our normal standard of practice at that point had been really more anonymous donation or unknown donation. We had been aware of the privacy walls coming down in Google image searching and early forays into social media. But I think it really all hit ahead when DNA testing merged with the new computer and social technologies. And these are like the saliva tests that people can send off that track their ancestry or, um, I, you know, I don't keep track of the companies, but I certainly keep track of the concepts. Yeah. And so, yeah, definitely. Um, Ancestry.com and 23andMe have become really popular. And I think for us, we I don't think that we really expected um, the interest in this at, at, at the same, at the, at the mass level that it's taken off. Um, but yes, people sending along those kits to learn more about where they come from um, often find out additional things like who they're related to genetically. And I don't think, uh, you know, when, when I first started practicing in this area, I don't think we really expected all of the forces that have converged, you know, the social media, social connection at the same time that people suddenly were willing to send their DNA to these companies to give them really um, private information about themselves. And so I think it's a constellation of forces has contributed to us seeing uh, genetic identity and identity narratives in new ways now. And so in, in addition to the DNA testing sites coming on board and uh, exposing this technology shift, what also happened was the voices started being heard. Um, you know, we, we learned, uh, we heard more voices of donor conceived people outside of the research context. We had social media providing new connections and new ways, new platforms to carry strong messages. DNA testing sites open the floodgates to new information to the masses and whole populations of newly discovered genetic connections, people that didn't know they were donor conceived. A lifetime of stories came forward at the same moment. And kind of all of these forces working together just really made it imperative that the industry had to respond and think about this from the patient care perspective. Because traditionally it was, you know, a lot of people, if they had questions and it, they discovered somehow, whatever, which way they discovered that there was donor situation going on, based on a lot of the literature that I've read, it seems that the main concern, of course, was disease or, you know, genetic issues that might, you know, happen to someone like diabetes or, you know, things of that nature. Do you, do you think that with this shift, and I think it's interesting you're mentioning this technological shift you know, what's the drive? I mean, other than not knowing biologically, I suppose, but what is driving this? It's so interesting. It's so interesting. And let me tell you a little bit about myself because I think it'll 
help you understand where my lens comes from. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, I started working as a genetic counselor in infertility in 2004 and probably began doing egg donor genetic screening in 2005, I think is probably when I first started. At the time, most of the donations were happening in an anonymous way. And I didn't really question the model as, you know, as a young genetic counselor, it didn't really occur to me. I I, when I would counsel recipients about the impact of genetics in their decision-making, the questions mainly revolved around any risks for inherited genetic disorders, like you mentioned, health issues. And I adopted a framework similar to my other counseling sessions with a focus on their hope for a baby, their infertility experience, their coping with the decision-making surrounding their reproductive options, their feelings of concern or curiosity about genetic issues that might come up and the implications of newer genetic tests or finding their way to medical care. So we would talk about recommendations for disclosing the child's genetic origins as sort of a sidebar to their you know, mental health consultation. I was extremely lucky that, that I worked in an ideal setting for this um, at UCSF because it was there that I worked very closely with an outstanding psychologist and thinker in this space, Dr. Lori Pash. And I would support the mental health recommendations for disclosure on additional grounds. It makes sense, you know, from a genetic testing perspective that the genetic or non-genetic nature of relationships would become known um, as testing makes it into more clinical settings. But at the time, I didn't anticipate that it would happen so very quickly and in such a social scale and such a mass scale. Um, and as a professional, I had immersed myself in third-party reproduction from a young age, and it felt very normalized to me. And I think it's easy to move how profound genetic identity can shape a person when you don't have that lived experience yourself. For me, it all shifted during this moment, but then it also shifted personally when I became an IVF patient myself and ended up conceiving my family through IVF. Um, we ended up having remaining embryos. And in that decision-making about embryo donation, about what does it mean to flip it and not be a professional to be a donor, you know, because I really connected with so many people's fertility stories. And I, I really felt called to do it, to donate my embryos, because I felt like, gosh, there could be such amazing parents out there that would appreciate this opportunity. But in doing that, I had to really confront my own personal responsibility. You know, I had created a batch of embryos that I didn't end up needing the entire batch. And what does that mean? And as a professional, what does that mean? What does it mean ethically? And all of these things of what do donor conceived people need? And so I just immersed myself with a different lens into what we are living in today. Um, you know, social media groups and things that discuss donor conceived needs in such a different way, in such a human way that I can't help but really connect and want to do the best I can do as a professional and as a, a donor. You mentioned working very close with a psychologist uh, at a very important time in your own development. How important do you think it is for genetic counselors and psychiatry or psychologist field to really communicate clear? What is it that you learned? What did you take away from interactions? Oh my gosh, that crosstalk is so very important. And I've had the wonderful experience of having additional relationships with other wonderful mental health professionals. So to me, it's becoming more crystal clear that that, that was a necessary development of the way that I consider this field. But I think it was because just on a daily basis, we were talking about what do the patients need? What is helpful to them here? And Lori and I are just friends. So we just had a really comfortable academic, you know, kind of conversation that just kind of every single day there was something new that was adding to it. And so I think for me, it was a real, I was just incredibly lucky to be in the same space as her and really have a, some 
really thoughtful commentary and just discussions. I think it was really helpful. But I think that I've continued on the, in that vein since um, my time at UCSF. And now I work very closely with Maya Grobel through my work with Empower and also Jen Vesbit and a bunch of other amazing mental health professionals who have helped us kind of as, as another as other mentors in our in our work. And what that's done is really helped me to see it in a such a bigger way. I see that genetic identity is not just, you know, about whether we have risk for mental health disorders or medical disorders, any of these things, which are very important things. And people need to know that stuff. It's really helpful for them, for their life, for their healthcare decision-making, of course. But beyond that, people often have true internal desires for understanding their narrative in a different way their story in a different way, and those things matter. And finding a way for those voices to come through and to transition the industry to seeing it in a more holistic way and in a family building perspective, helping people um, to make good choices on the front end is kind of where my passion has gotten. So then do you think that with donor anonymity, why is it important to still hold on to it then? You know, if, if, if the world's changing in such drastic ways and we're having more and more academic, you know, conversations about what exactly are the reasons for donor anonymity, why is it still in, important? I think that it's important to some people who are making decisions in a vulnerable state. Frankly, I think it's really hard to shift when you've been trying to use your own genetics to conceive for a long time to shift that vision so quickly to, okay, I'm going to use somebody else's gametes now. And it is a protection thing for a lot of people that anonymity feels like the most comfortable situation when, when it's such an important decision almost. But I think that is a human impulse that isn't well thought out. <laughs> and I think that, um, I think that the, the industry, you know, nobody knew how to create this, this social structure. It wasn't, I don't think it was intentional to create a division between what different people in the world need. I think it's just a reaction to what people are coming. So we have a vulnerable patient population that's making these difficult decisions and a vulnerable donor population that doesn't know what these relationships should look like. Nobody knew because this is all new. Once sex and reproduction were decoupled, we have to we have to tangle with some tough concepts of what is family? What does genetic identity mean? And it's just like, it's it's human nature to just jump to a solution, which is, okay, let's separate the two, make it easier, make it everybody so that everybody feels comfortable. But, you know, in the end, does it make everybody comfortable? I don't think so. I don't think donor conceived people think so. And not all of them. Some of them are comfortable with the idea of being anonymous, but not, but there's, we're hearing a lot of voices now. And I think just tangling with that awkward, that awkward time where we're like re wondering if we should reimagine our first iteration of gamete donation and maybe find a new way to help people normalize these concepts and to find, find empowerment in their family building choices, even when it needs a third party to help. I think we're in this new space now. Yeah. This, well, it's a generational sea change. You know, yeah. almost also as, 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 as that is life, as, right? as exactly. you know, it's a, cultures and societies, they change, they evolve and their ideas about things change and evolve. I'm speaking today with Gina Davis, who is founder of Advocate Genetics and, multi, and is a multi-state licensed board certified genetic counselor specializing in the field of reproductive medicine. We're talking about donor anonymity. You mentioned earlier Empower, which you also co-founded. Can you tell us a little bit about Empower? Yeah, I would love to. 
So yeah, Empower is an organization um, founded to empower choice in embryo donation. The two other founders, Maya Grobel, who's a California state licensed clinical social worker, and Jen Vespit, who's a nationally certified counselor, they're both personally involved in embryo donation like me. Um, I'm an embryo donor. Jen is an embryo donor. Maya is the recipient of of embryo donation and now is a mother via embryo donation. And we found each other while we were all struggling almost with the same questions of like, and and trying to um, handle them in different ways. Jen was running embryo donation support groups. Maya had finished a documentary uh, documentary with her husband that had been on um, Netflix about her experience um, and had been, you know, really focusing her new energy on, you know, making it more accessible for people that are considering embryo donation. Um, and I, as a genetic counselor working in the field, when my embryo donation story came about, I realized how much we needed to support people making these decisions and understand these new family forms. And I just realized there's this whole untapped area that we could really help people with some other way. So we found each other and we decided to apply for this grant through the um, Health and Human Services. And we were fortunate to receive it. And now we've been working really, really hard for the last two years on this project where we're basically trying to help people connect and understand more about what embryo donation is and the hard questions around it so they can make really informed choices on the front end. But in my mind, the reason that embryo donation is so exciting is that in some way, I think it's sort of a testing ground for the concepts of known donation, because a lot of times both parties want to come together and come with similar interests to the table. I think that it enables conversations to proceed a little bit more smoothly than it would in gamete donation, where it's traditionally that the um, recipients and donors are very different in age and life place, you know, place in their lives. So I think that in some way, embryo donation, a lot of the interest in matching and doing open embryo donation the last few years is coming at a time where it can be really useful to kind of helping us understand how we can shift this landscape with the new realities that anonymity is no longer possible. How do we figure out a way to help people that are using third-party reproduction despite that? And I think we're in a place where we might be able to transition it better, but our personal experience has brought so much to the forefront for us. And it's helped us to use our experiences to help educate other people making these decisions and finding new ways to bring empathy and empowerment to these families. You've touched on so many major points in our brief time today, and we're almost out of time. So I have one more question for you. What major questions or issues do you hope are addressed regarding donor anonymity in 2021? What is it that you see this year that will sort of push donor anonymity and what we're discussing today further along? Well, I think there's a lot of things happening right now. I think there are some legal challenges that are, you know, that are in the works that we'll see where donor anonymity goes and which side, like, I mean, it's really still unclear what the legal implications are of searching for donors. Of course, the children are not held to legal contracts their parents signed, but there's this whole question that I think the courts are, you know, working with right now of like, what does it mean if people search with their their children? At the same time, there's a lot of donor conceived people that are, you know, saying this is, it's not, it's unfair to make them wait until they're 18 to find these connections. And so I think I'm just really curious to see where the public discourse will go, you know, because I think also this has been a year of reckoning in so many ways that I feel like there's some social justice questions that I think are, I'm feeling very strongly right now. And I really wonder if we can, if we 
can, if we can, you know, find some movement there to help people make really wise decisions for their family building. Cause I think this is all about family functioning. It's all about creating the best environments for these families to then function past the time that we help them get pregnant. Some other things that I think are interesting is I think I, I'd like to see more society support of donor conceived people and understanding their motivations. And I think that we're getting a lot more voices there. So I'm really hoping this year is, is really rich with that. I'm also hoping that maybe we'll start to see some children's cartoons and media that feature donor conceived kids um, and that help normalize this as part of their character development, that helps normalize this concept in the in the minds of of all people so that these children really can have their identity stories valued and honored in a way that is really helpful to their self-esteem. I think that is something that we really need to think about as a society. So those are big orders for 2021, but that, hey, if I, if you ask me, I'll tell you what I want. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that the whole question of normalizing through media is absolutely something worth investigating. And I hope, I hope you can come back on again and we can continue this discussion and, and, and really get further into it at a later date. I've been speaking with Gina Davis. Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show today to discuss donor anonymity. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.